Before we begin, I need to correct something our guest Angela Williams, the pharmacist, said on episode one. She sent me a note letting me know she misspoke. She is not a clinical oncologist. She works in clinical oncology. You're listening to 1228, a new podcast exploring all the things that make us human. I'm Christine, your host, and this is episode two. This time, we'll get the perspective from three 20-year-olds. We'll hear from a high school teacher out of New Jersey, and we'll meet an amazing woman spending her self-quarantine with a cardboard rabbit. Let's begin. Part one, young adults. I'd like to dedicate this segment to Susie, who just turned 21 and was self-quarantined for her birthday. I've known her since she was one, and she's kind of like the daughter I never had. If I had to describe her, I'd say, Susie's like that ray of sunshine you might find in the shady part of the forest. Happy birthday, kiddo. I love you. Young adults. The world is so big, and their freedoms are light and limitless. Starting out in the world away from parents and the social structure of high school is liberating, right? Maybe mom and dad are still footing the bill. Or maybe they're working every shift possible to keep enough peanut butter and crackers in the cupboard. Whatever the situation is, the one thing they can be thankful for is the freedom to do anything or go anywhere they want. That was then, and this is now. I spoke to three 20-year-olds, one being my son. Here's what they think. I'm Jordan. I am 20 years old, and I live in North Carolina. Uh, so my name is Joe. I am 20 years old, and I am a college dropout. Uh, proudly, though. Um, I work in specialty coffee. Um, so I'm a barista for the short description, but long description, I work as a core member of a team of a new coffee shop that we just opened up. Uh, I'm also a musician and an artist. Um, I have a cat. I love her very much. My name is Aaron. I'm 20. I live in New Jersey and I am your son. How long have you been quarantined? Since the 17th March. And we're what, about six feet apart right now? Around, yeah, if you want to round up. Do you think that social distancing is the right decision versus herd immunity? I don't know. I think that I honestly don't know enough about, like, disease pandemics as a whole um, to be able to determine, like, whether or not the self-quarantining is something I'm on board with. It definitely, like, sucks. I'm not having a good time. Um, and it's affected a lot of different areas of my life, so I'm not necessarily happy about it. But um, I don't know. I feel like I'm doing my part by staying inside. I don't know if that's truly the case, but as of now, that's how I feel, I think. I think social distancing is a much better answer to the question, that question. Definitely going to benefit us long term, for sure. But we don't really know 100% what this virus is. I don't know if anyone's been around people who's had the virus, and I don't want to risk that for the people for me or for the people around me. And I don't know if I have the virus either. 
Well, uh, I think quarantining is important for people who are in densely populated areas and important for people who have large social circles that are not particularly, I guess, cautious. You know, people who go to parties and people who routinely see large groups, and especially for older people, I don't even think it matters what kind of social life an older person has. It's just a good idea to stay away from any sort of interaction with a whole lot of people or the outside. And herd immunity, as far as that goes, from what I've seen, nobody's being immune or getting immune to the virus after they've had it. And even if we had a vaccine, it would call, it would need to be at least 50% of the population being immune to create a sufficient herd immunity. And by that time, the death toll would have risen to probably hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. And just like the Spanish flu, this is the first wave of it, and there's most likely going to be a few consecutive waves. With the Spanish flu, the second one was the most dangerous, killed way more people than the first. And I think that's going to be a huge issue. The same thing happened in 1918. People, we won the war and people were outside celebrating. And then the Spanish flu hit again and killed many, many, many people. When do you think it'll be safe to enter back into being part of your community and not being worried about going to the grocery store and touching something or, you know, being two feet away from someone. I think there is a few possible scenarios, some more likely than others. In my personal opinion, I think this very well could become a seasonal thing. And even if it's not, I think with the American perspective on it and unrest, I think that as far as the virus goes, it will continue for probably a few more months, if not a year. But the economic system, of course, won't recover for probably decades. If you were in charge, as it relates to what you just said about being seasonal, you know, how would you handle knowing, okay, this virus is seasonal, it's going to kill many people? How would you handle that? Um, the flu is not nearly as serious for most people as coronavirus is 10 times more deadly than even swine flu. But in China, they wear masks all the time for pollution purposes. And it doesn't seem like it's a huge issue for them. Of course, from the outside perspective, it seems crazy. But at this point, I think it's a very real possibility that at certain times of the year, if not you know, the majority of the year, you'll see people wearing masks in particularly crowded areas or cities. So would you implement that then? Like everyone needs to wear masks from like this time of year till till this time of year? With climate change, it would be very difficult to predict when, you know, there's a season for flu and things of that nature. And as, you know, the climate changes, it's going to be a difficult thing to predict. So I think you'd have to keep an eye on it. When you first found out about this virus, you had a trip planned and you, we discussed it. We talked about the risk and you made the decision to go on this trip with your friends to rock climb, to go on a road trip. And so you got on a plane, you flew to North Carolina, 
you drove to Waco, Texas and back to North Carolina, got on a plane and then came home. (laughs) So can you tell me during that time, were you nervous? Well, I was definitely cautious. I think I made sure to wash my hands and I, I didn't really spend time with anybody else besides my two other friends that came with. When I got back to North Carolina, that's when I started actually socializing with other people. And um, I definitely kind of put caution to the wind there a little bit. Um, Like almost every night, we went out and hung out with a specific group of friends, but I wasn't really thinking about it. Were you like, oh, geez, my mom is just crazy and paranoid with, you know, when I was texting you and calling you and like concerned? Were your thoughts, yeah, my mom is just paranoid. This is going to be okay. No, I didn't think everything was okay. I kind of, I thought that everything was going to get worse than what it was. How did you feel when you had to get on a plane to come home? The only thing that changed was my anxiety. My my flight, there wasn't that many people on the plane. I didn't have anybody sitting next to me, but I was still thinking like, oh, I can't touch my face. Oh, I shouldn't touch this part of the, my armrest. Or it was definitely like a little stressful. But there was a part of me that just was like, I'm going to be fine. Can you share a little bit personally how this has been for you like is this is this you know just another day for you as far as being self-quarantine the isolation or are you feeling the need to really um, be social um you know everyone takes it differently my sister uh is a freshman in high school and she's still doing school online uh so she has pretty structured days and is going less crazy because of that I think my brother's home from college. He's definitely stir crazy and misses having his own space. Um, I miss having my own space. I need to move out. <laughs> a few months prior to the full um, impact of the lockdown, I was actually being more social than I had been in years. And I thought I was making a lot of progress with not being an isolated person in college because I didn't have a whole lot of social time in college for the majority of my um, time there. And uh, it was very jarring to go from, you know, being happier to being, you know, back where I was inside all the time, not talking to mo- many people at all. It's, it's definitely kind of challenging. Like, I've never been isolated like this before. I think I have a few friends that are developing forms of depression or if not adding to their already existing depression. Are you depressed? I wish I didn't have to like be cooped up as much as I am, but no, I don't think I'm depressed. In the beginning, we were kind of doing like a thing where we would like hang out six feet apart. Like we would all park our cars in a circle and sit in our trunks, like all six feet apart and hang out and talk. But eventually it got to the point where we just kind of felt too bad about leaving our houses. So I haven't really seen my friends. Well, we're social animals, right? We are definitely get along in a pack. 
And now that we have stay-at-home orders, that's it's challenging on all of us. Some days are good, some days are bad, some days are just medium, in between. I think that in the long run, like, this will end eventually. And that's kind of the attitude I've been sticking with. This is all temporary. This isn't like our new reality. This is just temporary. So that's been helping me feel better. What are you doing to distract yourself? There's a lot of uh, online stuff, you know, just talking to my friends in chat rooms. And that kind of got lost because everybody was growing up and, you know, doing things outside of being social while I was still doing that because I enjoy it still. But now everybody is back doing that. And so that's not too terribly bad, but I still do miss hanging out with the, the new group of friends that I made. I'm exercising way more frequently. I'm not climbing, but I'm doing, you know, calisthenic workouts just to get the blood flowing. And I'm watching things on my computer and I'm playing games and Sometimes I just stare out the window for fun, <laughs> listen to the birds, it's a nice day. A lot of music, um, a lot of writing, a lot of napping. <laughs> um, I got Disney Plus, I've been watching a lot of Disney movies, uh, more napping. I spend a lot of time like reading my own cards and learning new tarot spreads and stuff. I just try to entertain myself as much as possible. If you had a platform to speak to the whole entire world, to say anything you wanted to say uncensored, what would you say? I think I would just say that now is the time to make large changes in how we participate as a, a whole population, especially the working class. It's obvious that things have not been working the way we thought, and you know the virus really exposed that. And now is the time to make the change because everything has stopped. I think I would just say that the most important thing to do right now is to be in the present moment. I would say, don't be so scared. I would say, it's good to practice social distancing. I wouldn't focus on when we are going to be able to go outside again and like talk to people. Just, just take it slow. Take it a day at a time. I think the bright side of this entire thing is that the environment is benefiting a lot. Everything's so quiet right now. And that quietness is not a bad thing. There's probably going to be a lot of amazing writing and art and music that comes out of this period of time. Um, yeah, self-reflection. The silver lining is that we can focus more on ourselves a little bit more. I think it's I think it's awesome that pretty much everybody in existence is wearing sweatpants almost every day now. I think that's that's great. You know, yeah, we're adaptable hands. creatures. You can listen to some of Joe's music on Spotify under Get Me Felix G E T M E F E L I X. Part two, home education. One of the biggest changes we've had to endure with the COVID-19 crisis is the closure of our schools. 
We have no idea how this might change the way we teach or learn in the future. Will students benefit from less distractions or will they suffer from lack of social interactions? What are we doing to ensure kids are getting the best education possible from home? Were we really ready for a mass digital education system? For years, some school districts have had an online check sheet or progress report for students and parents to log in and access. But what about communities that don't have the same privileges? Not all kids are able to go online and research a topic for a paper they're writing, which seems a little unbalanced. I spoke to a teacher from New Jersey about what it's been like to teach from home and what her perspective is on how we're handling this nationwide. Hi, Julie. Hi, Christine. How are the teachers coping with this online teaching thing? Yeah, so uh, definitely, as you may have guessed, it's been a little bit difficult. But really, as teachers, we're just so committed to helping our students succeed. And we just want to do what's best for them. So we just have been trying to make that happen. I really have to say, I've seen so much amazing collaboration amongst people in all different departments in my whole school and in my whole school district. We've really like come together as one family. We pulled on all our different strengths and we're just all trying to support each other as best as we can when we need help, knowing when to ask for help and being humble and honest about that. And we're all really just learning so much every day. So we've all been exploring all different kinds of strategies and methods. And it's also been a really important uh, factor of the e-learning to establish clear and fair expectations with our students. And obviously with those expectations, having their best interests coming first. So um, for, for some of us teachers, that really entails doing things that we've never, ever done before. And you know, learning how to navigate different websites and software and, you know, things like Screencastify so we can give virtual lessons. And, you know, as, as tough as that may be, I've really felt like everyone who I've interacted with about it, all of my teacher friends and colleagues in my department, we've all been really pretty positive about it. And it's easy to complain. But um, I think that for all of us as teachers, the best thing that we can do right now is just to look at this time as an opportunity for pushing ourselves to learn new things and to be flexible and creative. And, you know, hopefully we can reflect on how we can incorporate all this stuff that we've learned due to the school closure and then incorporate that into our regular classes and then just be even bigger and better versions of our teacher selves. So um, <laughs> I think that the biggest thing for, you know, in terms of our coping is really just not, for me personally, is not seeing my students and seeing their faces and hearing their voices. And in our district, um, you know, we've been very, very uh, strict about not allowing any live video or audio interactions for our virtual classes. So all that we can do is either pre-recorded video and audio or just have to type everything out, basically. So, why, why do you think that is? Well, it's mainly for the protection of the teachers, I would say. Um, just because, you know, there's so many things that could go on that would be unexpected in a live video, as you might imagine, you know, especially when you think about 
teachers that they might have young children at home and you know if certain teachers started to use these live video and audio recordings the union anyway was kind of worried that that would become like an expectation of all teachers that all teachers would then have to do that for all of their classes otherwise maybe you know they wouldn't get paid because well they're not doing as much as another teacher might be doing and all that they had to do is like copy and paste their lesson whereas somebody else actually taught it several times so there's all these different kinds of you know, protections that have been built in, which I definitely do appreciate. But then at the same time, you know, it does sort of um, sacrifice our ability to, to maintain these really, really special connections that we have with our students. What about like the students? Are you worried that they'll fall behind? Their grades are going to suffer? Yeah. So uh, that's a really important question, right? So Of course, I'm worried that not all of my students might be able to learn as well in the online platform as they would in the classroom. I mean, like, I know for myself, um, I've I've never experienced a virtual class as a student before, and I can only imagine how difficult that might be to not be able to benefit from that collaborative atmosphere of having your peers right next to you. You can all work together to achieve a, a, a mutual goal in this circumstance. It's pretty much just, um, it feels a lot more like everybody's kind of on their own, except they know that they can lean on the teacher. They can ask each other questions too. It's just not that immediate sense of community, which I think is unfortunately um, pretty detrimental And the other thing is, too, is that they do really have to learn how to self-advocate then, you know, because for us as the teachers, sometimes in this virtual setting, it can be really hard to know when they're struggling. Um, So they have to learn how to reach out and and ask for help when they need it. But sometimes then it's a two-way street and they don't even know that they're struggling. So it's a little bit tough in that sense. But, um, you know, in my district, we have been really on top of our, our game in terms of holding students accountable to things like virtual attendance and making sure that they're participating. Um, we have these pretty, pretty well laid out policies and that's been helping us tremendously. Um, and our students, of course, for the most part, uh, the students at my school, because we're just a really high caliber school, they know that next year they're going to be held to very high expectations and they genuinely want to learn they want to be prepared for what's to come and it's really amazing they're they're taking initiative and they're seriously doing their part and it always warms my heart i see like how many questions they'll post on our virtual discussion board and you know they really do they hold themselves accountable in that regard too so you know in the end they're invested in their own education, right? And when they see that their teachers are trying so hard and somehow managing to deliver instruction and in a way that works for them, uh, you know, I think that they really recognize that and they appreciate that and they want to do as much as they can. I mean, what about the isolation factor with the students? Start there and then tell me about you and and how you're dealing yeah, so, well, um, you know, for, for the students, I, I think that they kind of have a little bit of a leg up in this situation, <laughs> to be honest, because, you know, they're all pretty much used to staying connected through some kind of virtual means. That's a really good um, point. 
Yeah, but you know what I will say, I do think that this isolation period will really help them to value the in-person human connection in a way that probably their generation, you know, really hasn't ever had the opportunity to appreciate in that way before. Um, so hopefully, you know, I'm always trying to think on the bright side, but um, for me, you know, the isolation has been hard because I'm a naturally outgoing person and truly, I know it sounds so sappy, but the best part of my day really is always interacting with my students and I really do love our time that we get to spend together and not getting to, to, to feel that bond and feel their energy and our energy together. Um, it's hard and I, I really do genuinely miss them. How do you feel about the just the overall way that it's being handled in the country? Well, you know, I got to say, for me personally, my school district is really very privileged because all of our practically all of our students have their own computers. Those that don't have a computer are given a loaner laptop at the beginning of the school year. So um, every student also has Wi-Fi at home. We sent out a survey. We're just so lucky. So, um you know, in reaching out to some of my friends that they teach in other places around the whole country, I've heard crazy stories about kids getting sent home packets just with some notes and some activities, but then they have to send back to the school in order to receive credit to pass their courses, and then the parents basically uh, being forced into this role of being a homeschool teacher, which is just kind of disastrous on a lot of levels, but I've also heard incredible stories from a friend who she works in New York City and Washington Heights, and she told me that they're trying to apparently install free universal Wi-Fi all around the neighborhood so that, you know, yeah, so there's all of these different measures that are being taken to try and minimize the the disruption in people's everyday lives, but, um, yeah, so it's really an individual thing, and in some places, like in uh, the city where I, I did my student teaching, uh, up in Massachusetts, they're making free and reduced lunch available to all students. They're also actually doing that in the county where I'm currently working um, for a few a few towns. And that's just so important. And it's all done through the schools. So, you know, for me, the overall biggest takeaway when it comes to the government's handling of this situation is just that education and our school system really needs to be better funded because you know, such a small percentage of the national budget goes towards education, but really our schools provide such an important service to our nation. And I just think that, you know, I think of how many privileges our school has and how all school districts should be able to have, you know, basic supplies provided for their students and provided for their teachers so that teachers don't have to pay out of pocket on their already low salary so that they can give their students the education that they deserve, right? And, you know, we should all have access to computers, and it shouldn't just be that because I'm in a privileged neighborhood, yes, my students can use computers. No, we should all have access to computers, digital textbooks in every school, and just along with many other modern conveniences that would really just skyrocket our education system in the 21st century. And in that way, you know, we'll be making sure that our country's young people are prepared to be positively contributing citizens in our community. So unless we invest more in our schools, 
we're really not investing in the future of our country. So that's my biggest takeaway for the government. I mean, the only direction is forward, really, with technology. So Exactly, exactly. And we just have to embrace it. And I think that, you know, uh, in, in the past, education was just sort of viewed as this, this assembly line, right, where you just crank the students out. And now it's very different. We obviously have come a long way and realized that that is no way to educate a young person. And we really need to take better advantage of the technology and the tools that we have now to, you know, harness our students' potential so that they can become the best versions of themselves and the best contributors to our society that they possibly can be. And we're really just handicapping ourselves if we don't support that. Thanks to all the teachers, parents, guardians, or really anyone who's trying to educate our youth from home. It's not an easy job and it's often a thankless one. Part three, the cardboard rabbit in the shed. Gail is one of my Facebook friends and over the years I've watched her take the worst of days and turn them into happy little giggles. She's an incredible woman who recently lost her husband Teddy to Alzheimer's. Anyone who knows or follows her on social media has had the privilege of witnessing her daily struggles and triumphs. Shortly after the world was brought to its knees by COVID-19, Gail posted a video of her and Mr. Rabbit, a cardboard decoration that she keeps out in the shed with all her other holiday fun. She's isolated in her home, alone, which seems really unfair considering all she's been through. She'd probably roll her eyes at me for saying that, because Gail doesn't want pity. She wants laughter. Teddy, Teddy was diagnosed with Alzheimer's 21 years ago. Before he died, he had it for 21 years. Um, I thought he had a stroke. And then, you know, they go through the tests. And back 21 years ago, they didn't quite have all the tests they do now. And pretty soon, you know, the, the list was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And then that little word, Alzheimer's, was at the bottom of the list. And... That was my introduction to losing Teddy. It's the long goodbye. Um, but then in 2014, he had colon cancer, stage four. I pushed for surgery, but they told me he had it in his liver too. So it was a matter of time, but he still hung in there. And I'm used to being alone because as time passes, you know with Alzheimer's, you're alone. You know, they're not there all the time. And slowly they go away, and it was more like I was a parent, or there would be just days when he would cut paper and not even say anything. I was going to say, I was I, I don't know if it was a video or a picture, I think it was a video of him cutting paper. I thought, wow, it's really simple things, right, to sort of buy you a little peace of mind to like maybe get lunch ready or clean up a little bit, fold some laundry to keep somebody that you love who's not really there anymore, right? Yeah. Distracted and safe. Yeah, um, it worked well. I mean, a lot of them will um, fold things. He also, if I gave him like uh, paper towels, he would fold them. I would unfold them and then hand them back and say, oh, you got to fold these. 
because he doesn't remember five minutes before when he folded the 20 paper towels or he would rip up nose tissue. I think they all have a texture thing where they need to feel like they're doing something, but they're not going to do what you want them to, you know, hey, how about helping me make the bed? You know, that's not happening. Teddy was a Marine, so it's either fight or flight for him. And so at the end, I guess about eight months ago, I had to take the scissors away from him because he stabbed me. And after that, he could only tear paper. Okay. And But towards the end, um, it was it was rough. But when people ask me now, well, you're sitting in the house because I have lupus. I was diagnosed with lupus before he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And I'm in self-quarantine to protect myself because my lungs are scarred. If I get this virus, forget it, you know. But I was in quarantine before when Teddy was alive. I couldn't go places. I had to keep him here because he would get violent. If you took him someplace, he would get scared. And he also, his filter broke on his mouth. So he would get rough with his mouth. So I'm used to being alone. But what upset me was on Facebook, seeing all those um, unhappy faces, those little you know, normally you put a happy face on, but they were always with the tear in the eye and stuff. And I'm thinking people have to understand you're going to be alone at some point in your life and things are going to be sad, but you can't just let it beat you. And I made that decision with Teddy a long time ago. I wasn't going to let Alzheimer's kill me you know, and kill my spirit. So I started learning to laugh at things he did, just like you would with a child, you know. Hey, wait till you find out what they did today. They stopped up the toilet, you know. And you sit there, and at first you're like, oh, what a pain. But later you're laughing and saying, hey, do you remember when the little My Pony was stuck down the toilet and we had to take the toilet apart? You have to find something to smile about or diseases like Alzheimer's or what's going on now, the pandemic, it's going to take you mentally. So when I saw all those very unhappy faces, I decided I'm here alone. What can I do? And I was looking at this four foot rabbit and saying, well, it's you and me guy. And uh, <laughs> I started doing little scenes with him and I don't talk for him. I just say what he said. What was that? what did you say? You know, and um, people started laughing and that's what I wanted. Okay. It's a bad situation, but if you don't smile at anything, then it's beating you already. It made me smile. <laughs> it <laughs> gave me giggles. So yeah. Um, I noticed that you started a YouTube channel. I have that when I had my radio show on online. I mm -hmm. used to do Mo Banshee's Lair. And I used to interview actors, scientists, everything. I think I did it for like 15 years until Teddy became too sick. So I had that and I thought, well, I'll just load them up to that YouTube. You know, the little ones with me and Peter. People can look at them and have a giggle for the day. Has anybody reached out to you and said, Gail, are you okay? Um, my son, Matthew, I don't know if you've heard of that show, 60 Days in Atlanta, where the guy, the people volunteer to go in prison undercover. It's on A&E. He was on season three. And um, when he came to me and said, okay, I want you to have an open mind. And he says, I volunteer 
And I asked him, why would you volunteer to go to jail? And he says, well, I've never been to jail. I says, I says, do you understand what you're going into Atlanta, you know, prison? And, um, he contacted me a couple of times and says, you know what, mom, they're going to lock you up. <laughs> you flipped. I says, this coming from the guy who volunteered to spend 60 days in Atlanta prison <laughs> with the Crips and the Bloods. Okay. Wow. But they all laugh. They all laugh. Uh, my daughter, now she's helping me with ideas. And I have a friend, Carrie, uh, and, and she helps me. So, um, you know, the this, this story is going to continue with little one-minute clips each day with Peter and myself until either I can't do it anymore or, um, you know, we get past this because I think people need to be reminded, yes, this is serious. This is not a joke. But if you don't smile about something, if you just sit in the room with your kids crying, what was me, what was me, it's beat you already. And you don't want that. How are you dealing day to day? Like, I know that you have this, you know, this little, um, I mean, I want to call it a comedy act, but it's, it's way, <laughs> it's even better than that, you know? Because, uh, yeah. um, I don't know what you would call it. Yeah. And I don't know. It just dawned on these people needed to smile about something. And if they laugh at me, that's okay. As long as they're not sitting crying. I think, um, I think they're laughing with you for sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, but how um, are you dealing aside from that? I mean, what other things are you doing? Well, I do have cats that I've rescued over the years, you know, and um, I take care of them. Two of them are blind. One of them only has one ear. So, you know, I, I have the cats, but I like to um, research a lot. I love researching history. I mean, I'll be watching TV and they'll mention something and I'll get on the internet and just start looking it up and I'll get lost for three hours uh, researching things that somebody said and I'll say, wait a minute, is that right what they're saying, you know? And that's what I do. I research, I look for things. I interviewed William Castle's daughter. William Castle was the director of The Haunted a house on Hornet Hill with Vincent Price. And when I got done interviewing her, she said, you know more about my father than I did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love to research things. I love history. Um, I get a little annoyed with all the negativity in politics now because you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You know, there's always somebody screaming. It's kind of like that movie Jaws hey, we're a summer place. We got to stay open. This is our business. And then when three people get eaten by sharks, why didn't you close the beach down? You know, um, I, I get tired of that because mm-hmm. it, it's somebody always needs to blame somebody else for bad decisions, you know? So I'm decorating. I decorate for all the holidays. I noticed that, that you are, you are a, um, a constant, you know, holiday decorator. (laughs) I love the holidays. My daughter was kind of upset because I was very, very sick when Teddy died. Um, I had been taking care of him for a long time and he did not go easily into the night. He ended up punching me five days before he died and broke two teeth. One was jammed up in my nasal sinus and that that had to be operated on to get that out of there and it's so close. 
Um, so she said, Mom, what are you putting up the Christmas tree in the village for? And I said, because I love it. No matter what is thrown at you, um, you're still looking forward to the different holidays. You're still um, making fun of yourself, making fun of whatever, you know, finding uh-huh. finding some giggles in tragedy. So. Yeah, I try. And the worst thing you can do is succumb to, oh, my life sucks. It's so terrible. Try to find something to smile about. You're still here. You have to use common sense. You have to understand there are just some things that laws and governments can't control, like viruses. And so a lot of it falls on you, but you also have to remember you have to be strong enough to not show fear to children. If you're scared, your children are scared. And you have to kind of hold it together. And and the best way to do it is to learn to smile and do something silly, um, like get a four-foot rabbit and find little <laughs> scenarios and talk to the rabbit and just pretend that you've got a roommate, you know? And it'll get you through it. We're not going to get through this unscathed. But we will get through it. This is a temporary thing. Let me ask you this. Any chance that you and Peter Rabbit are going to have any special guests? Like maybe, I don't know, Santa Claus or some other interesting character that might be out in the shed with all of your other decorations? Oh, I have a lot of people out in that shed. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you literally could break the congregating rules and have a a big party. <laughs> you know, it could be like uh, Tim uh, Allen with when he has the meeting with the, the Tooth Fairy and, and Mother Nature. <laughs> Follow Gail and Mr. Rabbit's adventures on YouTube. You can find them at Mo Banshee, M-O-E-B-A-N-S-H-E-E. If you have an idea or a story you want to share with our listeners, you can send it to ideas at 1228podcast.com. Thanks for listening. Toodles.